Hey, thanks for checking out this episode of the Screen Facts with Jason Davis podcast. Every Wednesday, we talk about a movie, we share some fun trivia facts along the way, and we invite you to join the conversation by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash screenfacts. You can post your comments or questions there as well. You can also tweet me at Jason Davis Voice. You can email screenfacts at yahoo.com. Also, there are lots of different ways you can listen to the podcast. For information on all of them, including the latest iHeartRadio website and app, go to jasondavisvoice.com slash podcast. Joining me this week on the podcast for a special sort of Halloween-themed episode. My good pal, Brian Blaze Berkowitz. Yeah, that was a little lame, my Detroit Rock City intro. No? Uh, that's almost like if Detroit Rock City was on the first Kiss album. I say let's go with it, let's move forward, and let's talk Kiss. So, Blazer, we are going to indulge ourselves for this episode. You and I have talked about a lot of movies on this podcast and most of the movies that we have discussed on the podcast, certainly a lot of other people were probably fans of as well. Today, it's a select group of people that are going to appreciate this podcast. You know, you say select group of people, but you know, <laughs> this is the Kiss Army, Jason. That's right. And a great man once said, they try to tell us we don't belong. That's all right. We're millions strong. One listener, 10,000 listeners, my wife and mom, I don't care who's listening. This is going to be worth it because today is the day that Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park. Yes, which, by the way, could be one of the worst movies ever made. Or could it be one of the greatest movies ever made also? As a Kiss fan, it's one of the greatest. That being said, <laughs> we're talking about something historical, something awesome that was a part of my childhood, my mm -hmm. life, yours as well. And I can't tell you how much time I've spent and you've spent talking to friends, making friends over Kiss. We're going to geek out. So we should just apologize now. If you're not a big Kiss fan, either you're going to enjoy hearing a couple of Kiss geeks geek out, or you're going to tune out and, and wait for next week's podcast. But hopefully, the Kiss fans that listen to this are going to appreciate us having fun geeking out about the band. For me, the movie represents a, a moment in time. Yep. And I have to admit something to you, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit this. As big of a Kiss fan as I was growing up, I did not see this when it originally ran on NBC in 1978. And there's a reason why. I'm listening. I wanted to watch this more than anything in the world. But my father had married this old prune of a woman. She had four older kids, one of which was maybe in his late 20s or early 30s. I wanted to watch Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, my brother as well. This dick insisted on watching Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And this was before the days of VCRs and DVRs and everything else. So I missed when Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park originally aired. The first time I saw this movie was in the probably mid-80s or so. The CBS Late Movie showed this, I was so happy. I couldn't believe it. It was my chance to finally see this movie. And then, of course, shortly after that, it was released on video and the rest is history. So two things. One, I'm shedding a little bit of a tear over that. I know. Because Could I watched it the night it aired. I watched it in my living room. Right. I don't know if my, I think my parents might have been in there watching, but I thought it aired on Halloween when in fact it aired on the 28th. So on the way down here, I asked Siri what day of the week, uh, October 31st, was 1978, as they thought this aired on Halloween, which was a Tuesday. So we go Tuesday's the 31st, Monday's the 30th, mm -hmm. Sunday's the 29th. So it must have aired on a Saturday night in 1978. Go. And I remember watching it on our boxy TV. <laughs> I'm freshly eight years old. Nice. My entire world is Kiss. Everything about it. Remember, this is pre-internet. I don't even know what their voices sound like. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that Gene Simmons always walks around with echo behind him and can <laughs> 
Drow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but my point being is I watched this as it aired, and I just want to fast forward a second. Years later, I remember looking in TV Guide and seeing it was going to be on at like 11, 12 o'clock, mm-hmm. and sitting in my room with a little red black and white TV, <laughs> rabbit ears with tinfoil. I don't think I was supposed to be up that late, and I just remember it being awesome. It was one of those things. Oh, I yeah. watched it the second time in black and white, so I guess I must have read TV Guide or my father or somebody found it, but you know, this is the kind of impact this stuff has. Now, nothing wrong with Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, but I'm going to say it again. That might be the saddest thing I've ever heard in my life. Hey, when you're nine years old and Kiss is like the biggest thing in the world to you, you don't want to hear about Chitty Chitty fucking Bang Bang. And Chitty Chitty fucking Bang Bang, not to be confused no. with straight up Chitty Chitty Bang That's Bang. That's right, because it is Chitty Chitty fucking Bang Bang when it replaces Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. And I want to get your perspective if you remember this. When you first saw it, 1978, you're eight years old. Did it dawn on you that it took the band 30 minutes to show up into this movie? Actually, it's funny you should just say that. It it did not, but when I watched it to prepare for the podcast, I had it 29 minutes the first time you see Kiss. So I think that maybe the um, people talking about Kiss, surrounding my Kiss, the anticipation of seeing Kiss probably was irrelevant as a kid because this was a movie about Kiss. And you know something? I, I actually, I'm going to put the brakes on for a second because I know right now there are Kiss fans listening to this screaming at their device going, they're right in the opening credits doing rock and roll night. Yeah, but it's not the same. I'm talking about when they show up in the movie and they're quote unquote acting. 100%. But I will say this. Though, they do they make op- a great entrance. I, I, I like <laughs> everything about it. Watching the Gene with his foot hanging off of the bumper car. Yeah. And um, <laughs> no. And what did they spin? Rock and Roll Over, right? That was the album cover yes. that spinned at the top of this? Yes. That was pretty awesome. So I think we could stand corrected, but like anything else, if you're watching a TV show, Friends, you're going to see them in the opening credits. Why should this be any different? Right. In fact, that might have been the fix that kept us going the additional 29 (laughs) minutes into it. (laughs) To sit through all the other crap. Yeah. Because when was Kiss playing? Kiss? Tonight. tonight. Kiss tonight. We're we're thinking hashtag Kiss tonight, aren't we? I think that might be a good hashtag. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the movie and and some of the supporting players, if you will. I like to call this, let's get some housekeeping out of the way. Let's get some housekeeping out of the way. So, of course, the movie stars Kiss. One of the things I noticed watching it again, when Kiss is listed in the opening credits, when they're showing them, they do it in alphabetical order. It's funny you should say that because I was like, why is Peter first? Yeah. In my mind, it was always Gene, Paul, Peter, and Ace. I don't know why. That's the way I always said it. So um, the guy who plays the Phantom of the Park, again, why he's called that, who knows? Uh, But anyway. I I was thinking that also. Abner Devereaux is played by Anthony Zerby. Uh, This is a guy who has quite a resume. If you go on his IMDb page, you'll be astounded by how much work he's done over the years. He actually won an Emmy a couple of years before this movie for a series called Harry O. And when you watch him in this movie, you go, how the fuck did he win an Emmy? Because his acting in this movie- Oh, terrible. Oh my God, everybody is terrible. Well, the funny thing about this movie also, which kind of was weird, nobody except the guys in Kiss and I think uh, Brian James, who was the big, tall, burly uh, Security security guard, don't even have their pictures on IMDb. And I don't think they've done anything. So I don't know if someone may turn around and say, was this movie the- Kiss of Death. I'm doing air quotes, by the way. The Kiss of Death. It it wasn't actually, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Yeah, so this guy is a pretty renowned actor, Anthony Zerby. Deborah Ryan plays Melissa. She really didn't go on to do much after this. Uh, I think she may have done a little bit of soap opera work or some series work. And her, then and then she kind of like stopped acting. Her acting was not outstanding either. Oh, this. no, she was awful. You know what? Nobody really shines acting wise in this movie. For Kiss, you would kind of expect them to not be able to act because they were musicians. They weren't actors. And it's pretty well documented by Paul and, and probably Gene, too, that when they were filming this, 
before the cameras would start rolling, somebody would feed the lines to the guys, right? Before their, their right. speaking parts. The director would go, action. And if they said their line without flubbing it, that was a take. Well, that was my point also. I don't know how much pre-production there were with the actors. I'm guessing there weren't a lot of table reads. I'm guessing there were not no. a lot of no rehearsals. So there weren't any rehearsals. So I'm guessing that this was kind of, let's just get the scene and hope nobody screws this up and move on to the next thing. Yeah, they were, they were under... Uh, a strict deadline and budget and they really I think they were really trying to capitalize on how big Kiss was well, in 1978 it's funny you should say that I, t- I told you that there's certain things that trigger the pleasure center in my brain mm-hmm. pandas <laughs> and, and 1970s Kiss oh absolutely well, this watching this movie the costumes the time period the snapshot of Kiss in 1978 is really what's in the memory banks this was you could tell they were on top of the world and then and then some at this point it was not a stupid move to try and capitalize on the movie it might have been that I'm guessing this was a rush job it had to have been how much time did they have to put into production of this thing it might not have been thought out as much as it could have been and, and planned as much as it could have been but you were talking about the pleasure center you know the cool thing about this movie for me aside from it being Kiss which is awesome it's a fun nostalgia trip overall because the 70s fashion the hair everything about it is 70s and it just brings you back it's fun we talk about good snapshots of time periods and this Mm -hmm. really would be a good example of 1978 or the 70s in general absolutely directed by gordon hessler written by jan michael sherman and don boudet it's amazing to me that two people wrote this movie (laughs) two people to come up with this i agree (laughs) yeah but before we like go further into this, I, I want to do a special thank you, a shout out to Dale Sherman and the KISS FAQ book. There were some facts on IMDb about this movie, but the KISS FAQ book is a great resource for KISS fans for, for all the information you could possibly want about KISS. And there's a whole chapter about this movie. And most of the facts that we're going to share during the podcast come from the book. So thanks to to the book and to Dale Sherman. The source material, the amount of writing about KISS, the amount of interviews, websites, etc. There really was a lot to look at at this movie compared Mm -hmm. to, you know, a movie where you have an IMDb page and that's it. A lot of stuff is pretty well documented from the band, you know, from different VH1 shows or whatever. The cool thing about the FAQ book is that it really goes a little bit deeper. It even talks a little bit about what happened to some of the other cast members and things like that. So it helps with kind of really doing a full screen facts experience for this movie. Well, I just want to say also talking about the 70s and going back to this for a second also, Mm -hmm. this was a Hanna-Barbera movie, correct? Yes, sir. My two favorite things looking back on it as an adult with TV programming Hanna Barbera and Sid and Marty Croft. Right. Um, you know, and either one of them probably could have taken this movie on. <laughs> but the fact that it's a Hanna Barbera movie also really, uh, I think, kind of adds to the um, cheesiness. The, the, the cheesiness and the sentimentality that it's really, like we said, a snapshot of the 70s and my childhood. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah, your, I mean, yours as well, but I'm just saying. Yeah. Even though I didn't see the movie when I was nine, I remember very well Kiss Alive 2. That just blew me away. You know, you open Kiss Alive 2 as a nine year old and you see that that gatefold picture with the flames and everything. It was the greatest thing ever. I it mean, really should have said, ah, yeah. when you opened that album. Absolutely. And then don't forget, Kiss Alive 2 also had the evolution of Kiss book, the fake tattoos. And I have to imagine that's all Bill of Coin. That was really- Oh, it was, yeah, without a doubt. We, sh- we should mention that we were- Nobody at the- else was doing that back then. Should we mention that we were at the Kiss Expo and got the opportunity to uh, see Bill of Coin's nephew? Yeah, who looks exactly like him. Right. And we signed the petition to get Bill of Coin into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, who richly deserves that honor. 100%. 
100%. Even though the Hall of Fame's crock of shit anyway. I think it would almost be a little unfair to discuss this movie and not give at least a shout out to Bill Coin. Oh, absolutely. Or to discuss Kiss and not give a shout out to Bill Coin. Absolutely. There's so many great Bill Coin stories with the band when they were first starting. The most famous one is that he financed their first tour or first couple of tours on his American Express card. You and, know. and that's probably before he got points. <laughs> he was like literally a quarter of a million dollars in the hole. Before Kiss Alive came out. Yeah, and before Kiss really blew up. And uh, literally, right? Right. Um, but <laughs> but there's a, a great story that Paul tells about how they were starting to break, but they weren't really making money yet. And he went into Bill O'Coin's office to ask for either an advance or a raise or something. And Bill O'Coin was uh, sitting on his, you know, at his desk. He had his feet up. He had holes in his sweater. He had a hole in the bottom of his shoe. Paul Stanley saw that. He walked right out. He didn't have the heart to ask for money, knowing that his manager was like wearing holy shoes and stuff. Well, he probably kept those under the desk for an emergency. You know? Yeah, exactly. That's funny. Yeah. So uh, according to Dale Sherman's book, the summer before the movie aired, Gene Simmons said in an interview that Kiss was close to signing a deal to do a series of films for a major studio between 1979 and 1982. Other sources said that a major studio was offering to do a movie with Kiss with a $10 million budget. Back then, that was pretty huge. By way of comparison, the original Star Wars had about an $11 million budget. They kind of felt Kiss was so big that everything they did was going to be really big. It's going to, it was going to blow up. It's going to be hugely successful. So why not? But this movie and the solo albums were really the first things that kind of were the downfall of KISS before their resurgence in the 80s without makeup. Started to see some cracks in the dam, as you'd say. Yeah, absolutely. 1979 to 1982, think about, as far as kiss what happened in that time. Peter Chris leaves the band. Shortly thereafter, Ace leaves the band. They go through the Elder, right. Unmasked, which Unmasked, I think, had potential to be a good album. And I actually like a lot of the stuff on Unmasked, but as far as Kiss records go, it's kind of weak. Creatures of the Night, 83? 82. 82. Creatures of the Night, which I think was then and history proves to be a phenomenal album. Absolutely. I think they were still struggling during Creatures of the Night. It wasn't until Lick It Up where they basically became a household name again. Well, that was the thing. You know, the Creatures of the Night album was a great record. But as Paul Stanley has said, people were listening with their eyes instead of their ears. And at, by that time, the makeup had become sort of passe and nobody really wanted to see Kiss anymore. I mean, that the tour for that album was the 10th anniversary tour. Nobody came to the shows. They ended up having to cancel the tour. And then they kind of decided, look, either we're going to make it without makeup and go just on the music or we don't deserve to be a band anymore, which is what Paul Stanley has said numerous times. And it turned out to be the shot in the arm that they needed. And then they had that whole pretty much decade without makeup before they did the reunion in 96. Which I loved, by the way. Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of people did also. My friend Ray always says, this was our Kiss lineup. You know, we were absolutely. Little, when you could actually go see them. You know, the, the first time I saw them was on the Lick It Up tour at Radio City Music Hall. Mm -hmm. And then sort of an Animalize, you know, the Meadowlands and stuff. Oh, yeah. So, you know, my Every first, tour. My first opportunities to see Kiss were involving 80s Kiss. Yeah. And I think we would be remiss for not mentioning Bruce Kulick and Eric Carr when we talk about Kiss at all in a podcast. And while we're at it, we should mention Vinnie Vincent, Mark St. John, Eric Singer, and Tommy Thayer as well. These guys all play a key, important role in the band's history. But as far as the non-makeup era, you can't ask for a better guy on guitar than Bruce Kulick. And Eric Carr was amazing. 100%. I have nothing further to say on that because there's nothing else that's perfect. 
So let's get back to the rest of the cast. We talked about what would happen to the cast after Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. So I mentioned that Anthony Zerbe won the Emmy, but he was in The Omega Man and some of the Matrix movies, among others. Carmen Caridi, who plays the park manager, Calvin, uh, he had roles in all three Godfather movies, if you can believe that. I really liked him a lot, actually. He was one of yeah. my favorites. I like when Gene gives him the rag to dry his sweat. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. Was Gene saying you're welcome because you read his mind? That's definitely how I interpreted it. Um, I wanted to say one more thing also while we're talking about the cast. John Chappell, mm-hmm. who played Sneed. Mm-hmm. Every time that guy opened his mouth, it almost sounded like the best voiceover guy in the world was looping it for him. I had to point it out. By the way, I took some notes on this because I That's thought- That's okay. And actually, the, one of the main reasons I took some notes is because your other guests have really been knocking out of the park, 100%. Thanks. I'm going to just tell you one other of my notes, if That's you That's fine. Mind. No, go ahead, man. So at the opening scene, when the music plays, you know, they're in the sky, they're, was it Shock Me they're playing? When they're flying in the sky, right? Yeah, it's the guitar solo from Shock right, Me. Right, and then they come into a Shadow Out Loud. I noticed a baby in a baby stroller in the audience. Yes. And that kind of threw me off a little bit. Like it's, it... I think that they, they probably put the camera on that baby purposely because by this time, Kiss was starting to become a little bit of a family act. Right. And by 1979, it was really out of control. I mean, they, they had those really flashy, almost Vegas-style outfits. And that was a big thing that... Gene and Paul say kind of contributed to the downfall of the band because they were sort of edgy in the beginning. And then by the time 1979 rolls around after this movie, the solo albums, Dynasty, the flashy costumes, all that stuff, they kind of became a little sterile. I love the Dynasty album. Me too, but there was a little past glory that was riding them. Yeah, I think they were listening to too many people, giving them bad advice maybe by that time, and and things got too big with the merchandising, and they sort of forgot where they came from a little bit probably. But, you know, listen, we could say that all we want. They're still around 40 plus years later. God bless them. To me, they're as awesome as ever. They really, they've they've become, I don't don't, want to say cult in a bad way, but they really are like a cult status. Look at the group of people we saw at the Kiss Expo. I mean, people just- All ages. All ages, loving, and I consider myself a Kiss fan. I was not a Kiss fan when I went there. There were people who blow me away. I thought I was a fanatic until we went to the Kiss Expo. That being said, you and I could hold our own in any Kiss conversation out there, as far as I'm concerned. The only difference between us and some of those other people is that we don't spend all of our money on merchandise. That's true. I don't judge people for doing that, but I think you could be super passionate without being that over the top? I don't know. I mean, I think it's cool. There's not a lot of other bands that can have expos. I was standing outside Madison Square Garden waiting for, I think it was the Asylum Tour. Mm-hmm. Kiss fans, everyone's getting along. And sure. I was arguing with some guy who was a bigger Kiss fan and we were dropping lyrics and everything. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I went to Unmasked and started spitting out lyrics for Unmasked. And it was like the knockout punch. This nice. Could be right. you know, this, this guy was a Kiss fan, but if you gloss over any part of the catalog, I think <laughs> that there's going to be holes in your ability to defend yourself. There's like maybe two albums in the KISS catalog that I really am not well-versed in. And it's the Peter Chris and Gene Simmons solo albums. I'll agree on that. And there's certainly tracks from all the other albums too that I'm not a big fan of. But there's songs on almost every KISS record from the beginning until now that I like. Me too. Including albums that a lot of KISS fans go, Ugh, you know, like Unmasked or The Elder. So is this basically talking about this movie because we have a Kiss movie to legitimize a Screen Facts episode where we're basically using it for the distraction so we could talk about Kiss but still not seem weird? Maybe. Listen, I'm not going to apologize. No, me neither. We've been waiting to geek out about Kiss on this podcast for a long time. Would you you say nine out of ten podcasts there's a Kiss reference in it? Almost every one. I try to throw something in there. But sometimes it works. Sometimes it's really forced. Right. (laughs) But it's consistent and I appreciate that. 
listen, Kiss is a part of who I am, and anybody who knows me well appreciates that. All right. Like, I have my friend Monique, who did the Ferris Bueller podcast yep. with me. The other day, just randomly, she posted a clip from the Paul Lind Halloween special on my page I on saw Facebook. that. You tagged me, and I think I put it on my page uh, separately. Now, I remember that, like yeah. it was yesterday coming oh, on. That's great. I remember you, him you, saying, we don't wear makeup. The, great, the greatest thing in that performance, it's lip-synced. But Detroit Rock City, yep. Paul Stanley gets some incredible air in those platforms. Yeah, no, it it's was unbelievable. It was great, and that that was. A, I think if you talk about history, that was a very important moment that Paul in special. That's something that's oh, absolutely gets talked about. Absolutely. So, what were we talking about? Were we talking about a movie? We, we were talking about the rest of the cast. Lisa Jane Perksy, who plays Dirty D, played one of Meg Ryan's friends in When Harry Met Sally, which is a great flick. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, she doesn't have a large role in that movie, but there's definitely a scene where you could see her. It's not just like uh, in the background. She does have a speaking role in that. And she was also in The Great Santini and The Twilight Zone movie. John Dennis Johnston, who plays Chopper, played a cop in Annie Hall the year before this movie and had a successful TV career after the movie. One of the security guards uh, we mentioned before was played by veteran character actor Brian James. He's done a lot of stuff. Blade Runner, 48 Hours, Tango and Cash. Yeah, he was great. And also, I think Chopper, I reckon. He's the other guy that had a little bit of a career, as we just said. Yeah, I yeah. recognized him. I mentioned before, Deborah Ryan, uh, who plays Melissa, did a few TV roles in the early 80s before moving on to other things. And Terry Lester, who plays Sam, worked on several soap operas in the 80s and 90s. He died of a heart attack in 2003. Oh, I didn't know that. That's kind of sad. Yeah, He, he also, in my book, probably could have played Flash Gordon in the movie also. Yes, he could have, actually. We mentioned how this was kind of the first crack in the KISS armor, so to speak. And it's been, again, pretty well documented that the band was not really getting along well at all when they were making this movie. And you got to remember, they're like the biggest band in the world at this time. So as a fan, you probably would not have imagined that there was bad stuff going on. I made a note about that also, basically mm -hmm. saying that it was funny how they were all hanging out together. And also, why was there a huge estate inside of Magic Mountain for them to be staying at? You know, oh, the, uh, Listen, we could do the entire podcast could be about things that do not make sense in this movie. Like, why are they sitting around a pool on those gigantic stools with those robes? on? Well, I, I mentioned the silver robes. You know, honestly, to me, those silver robes were awesome. Those. Oh, I want one. Right. Me too. But just the very fact that it, it was I'm thinking it was probably a thousand degrees. You could see Gene sweating. Oh, absolutely. In, in that scene. And they must have had to reapply the makeup a hundred thousand times for this movie. But those are the things that stand out. You know, I have to say one other thing also when Abner Devereaux gives um, Melissa the use this badge you can get along the whole park yeah. I noticed that it was a blue button that said security pass right. on it I, I'm just laughing like oh she's got a security pass button let her through let's go right to kiss no problem and I love that it's uh, it clearly is a camera of some sort he can hear everything and see everything that's going on as long as she's wearing that thing right you know after Devereaux was no fool no he wasn't you know talking about things that don't make sense they never explain why kiss has superpowers either the assumption was that anybody watching this movie had read the kiss comic book Books because that's where that comes from, the talisman and all that. Right, right. And that's kind of a, a huge plot hole if you're just watching the show without knowing that information. You want to laugh? I, I decided, I think Ace had the best role in it. It's actually funny that you mentioned that. Well, my understanding is that when, when they were writing this, they sat down to interview all the members, the writers, and Ace and True Ace Form would only say, Ack. That's all he would say. And in the original script, that's all he would say in it. He got upset about yeah. it, which is why they gave him more dialogue. But I kind of thought maybe he seemed the most real in it. Like if you think of the way you know Ace and we know him now watching mm -hmm. him, it seemed like he was really true to himself out of it. He was funny. He had the right sense of humor. He's one of the, the funniest things in the movie. One of the most enjoyable things. I mean, the movie, obviously when they were making it, they weren't setting out to make a comedy. It's unintentionally very funny watching the movie. It, it's, it's very funny in a good yeah. way. I um, mean, the dialogue, and that's the thing. 
you know, people can say, well, what business did Kiss have making a movie? They, they're not actors, blah, blah, blah. But forgetting that, the movie is not well written. The no, story is all over the place. It doesn't make any sense. The stuff that the guys had to say was just really, really dumb. And let's, I mean, ba- and let's back our boys up. They were not responsible for the script or the no. dialogue. The director should have made sure it was great. The people who approved the script, now I'm guessing they got a blank check to do whatever the hell they wanted because they were so big at the time. But I don't look at this movie as a joke. This is, we talk about history. No. This is possibly uh, you know, one of the biggest Think about it. Was it an hour and 40 minutes, two hours of Kiss? I mean, what's better than that? Yeah, back when it when it aired on TV, it was sure, two hours. Sure, with commercials, right. Yeah. So what's you know, what's better than that? Is it fair to say that this is basically Kiss meets Scooby-Doo before they met Scooby-Doo? <laughs> I think the Kiss meets Scooby-Doo thing that they did uh, recently is definitely done for laughs. They are definitely tongue firmly in cheek on that. And, and should we clearly say that was freaking awesome across the board? Absolutely. I mean, listen, it's certainly geared more toward kids, but it's a lot of fun as a fan. You can appreciate it and just how they poke fun at themselves. They poke fun at the manager, always trying to make money. It's very well done. It was. I enjoyed it. I think it's better than this. I don't think it's ever going to stand the test of time like this did, no, but it's uh, no. it was it was well written, it was well done, and I right. enjoyed it. I just want to say one more thing because I'm jumping all over the place. No, that's it's okay. my last note. That's okay. So do you remember after one of the fights, they kind of reconvene on the carousel? Yes. And did you notice that Gene is standing on a dragon? You know how on the carousel they have horses, then yeah. sometimes they have the seats? I did never notice I that. I just noticed that right before I came here today, that Gene is standing on a dragon. Or on the, the, on a, the carousel. The carousel is like a dragon to sit down in. He was probably like, I get the dragon! <laughs> Well, it makes sense, like, certainly. I, you know, Paul Stewart's like, but I want to sit on the cat. No, I get the cat. You know? <laughs> Ace is like, ah! The whole production for this movie was probably a little haphazard. It was like, let's get this done. They didn't put as much thought into it as they probably could have. You know, maybe that's why the script wasn't really up to snuff and all that kind of stuff. Because they were busy doing other things, too. I think we probably, even though people that are in the know at this probably should talk about some of the more uh, better known facts. Yeah, so when they were filming the movie, well, it's any movie. When you're filming a movie, a lot of times you have to go in, and probably almost every movie, you go into a studio after the movie wraps shooting, and you record some of the audio. Uh, It's called ADR, Automated Dialogue Replacement, or looping, they call it. And basically what you do is you match your voice to the screen. You kind of lip sync with yourself. And it's done to help a movie when the audio is not quite up to snuff when it was shot. Because, you know, on set, especially in an uncontrolled environment like a theme park, you got background noise. Maybe the boom operator didn't have the mic close enough to one of the actor's mouths. The wind, anything. Anything, exactly. There's a lot of different stories about this. There's a story that Gene says that Peter Chris, when he said his lines in the movie, you couldn't understand him, and so his voice couldn't be used. Another story is that, and this is the main one, is that he would not show up for the looping sessions. So, as a result, Peter Chris's actual voice is only heard once in the movie, and that is when he's lip-syncing to the song Beth, when they're played on an acoustic guitar, which is very interesting, by the way. That's not Paul Stanley playing, and we'll get to that in a minute. They ended up using a voice actor to dub all of Peter's lines. Now, there's a couple of names that are being mentioned with this, and I'm sure there's other KISS fans that know this information and maybe argue one way or the other, but the two names that I read, one was Michael Bell, who did a lot of work for Hanna-Barbera, including the voice of Zan of the Wonder Twins. That's the guy I'm betting on, because I think Peter sounds like Zan in this movie. A lot. And who was the other person, they say? And by the way, Michael Bell was also the original voice of Parquet Margarine, if you remember those commercials. I remember that. Butter. Parquet, you know. Anyway. So IMDb... That was awesome. (laughs) IMDb also says Norman Alden, who provided the voice of Aquaman on the Super Friends, 
was also the voice of the Catman in this movie. And it's very clear when you watch the movie that that's definitely like a cartoon character voice. Yeah, it wasn't terrible. It's just, no. I, I agree. Another thing that a lot of people that are familiar with the movie know is that this was pitched to the band as a hard day's night meets Star Wars. I'd watch that. <laughs> of course. And that's probably why the band was psyched to do the movie because, well, that sounds pretty cool. But uh, it's anything but that, obviously. But, you know, another thing that's uh, pretty notorious is that when you're making a movie, a lot of times you're, you sit around and wait a lot. So there was uh, one day in particular that they were shooting where Ace got fully made up. He's in the outfit and he gets to the set and the director goes, oh, I'm not going to need you until later today. So it's like, what? You know, I got here early. I got all made up and you don't need me. So he leaves the set. He goes off, but then they, he doesn't come back. So they ended up having to use a stunt double who was played by an African-American. <laughs> to you, could to, you could totally tell. Well, there's, it's funny because, you know, the stunt guys, there's the big climactic scene where Kiss fights themselves, the robot Kiss. You know, and so obviously they're going to have to fight stunt guys. So yeah, there. But there's actually stuff where I guess it's supposed to be just them and it's the stunt guy too. Well, I did make a note. I did notice that when Robot Gene shows up and security guards get attacked by him mm -hmm. and he crashes through the concession stand, that is the, not Gene. The cardboard con concession yeah, yeah, stand. Yeah, that, that's not Gene. Yeah. So we should also talk about that there are two versions of this movie. There's the Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park version. That's, to me, the better version. That aired on NBC in 1978. And then what they did was, after the movie was on television, they re-edited it, they changed some scenes around, they added some stuff, they took out the Hanna-Barbera scoring and added Kiss solo album music, and then they released it overseas as Kiss in the Attack of the Phantoms. That version of the movie appears on the Kissology DVDs. Okay. It's not nearly as fun because one, there's not enough Ace. There's okay. less Ace. And I think to really fully appreciate the magnitude of how cheesy this movie is, you got to have the scoring from Hanna-Barbera. There was a couple of guys that scored the movie. Fred Carlin was the first guy to contribute to the scoring. He worked on the music for the fight scenes. He ended up having to leave the production in July of 1978, and he was replaced by Hoyt Curtin. Curtin was best known for his work scoring Hanna-Barbera cartoons, and he actually even wrote the theme songs for both the Flintstones and the Jetsons. So you put all that together... And you get music that seems completely inappropriate for what's going on on screen and very dated. And it's, it's really strange, but it adds to the cheesy fun of the movie for me. The music during the fight scenes, if you think about it, TV shows from the 70s, you know, they had kind of that kind of music. I did make a note that there was porno music during the, uh, <laughs> during the fight scenes. Did I write that? The, uh, yeah. the wolves in the silver suits, right? The yeah. white wolves with the silver suits. Yes. E I wrote equals porno music. <laughs> Hi, I'm here to clean your pipes. <laughs> right, right. But that was kind of like 70s cop shows had that music. Yeah, totally. It's, uh... <laughs> oh, and it just goes right down from here. Oh, it's oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We should also talk about where the movie was filmed. Magic Mountain in Valencia, California. It's the same amusement park, by the way, that was used for Wally World in National Lampoon's Vacation, another movie we've talked about on the podcast going which way back. Which makes sense why the guy said, the demon out front should have told you the park is closed. <laughs> According to an April 1978 edition of Variety, shooting was supposed to take place at King's Dominion. In Virginia. Magic Mountain wasn't the first location. King's Dominion where the banana splits were filmed. There's there's something with King's, King's Dominion. Possibly. Something, something on here. <laughs> it's I funny. So I mentioned earlier that the only time you hear Peter Chris's voice in the movie is when he's lip syncing Beth. 
Originally, Peter wanted to play the guitar, but then he realized that he wasn't going to be able to convincingly look like he played guitar. So they gave the guitar to Paul. And as it turns out, though, it's not even Paul playing on the track. Dick Wagner, who's been kind of a in the shadows guy on some other Kiss stuff, a couple of things, had worked on Destroyer. He played the guitar solo for Sweet Pain. Most Kiss fans know that. But he also did an acoustic guitar part for Beth on Destroyer. So they ended up using him for that version of the song in this movie. I, I didn't know that at all. Yeah, I just I just found that out too. That was something I'm, that I read. I'm wondering with the tensions in the band also. I think the fact that Beth was such a big hit was caused a lot of tension in the band. I don't mean bad for the band because it was great for them. No. But it, it certainly exploded Peter's ego from everything we know about it. Absolutely. And I'm just wondering if they, how they, the rest of the band felt that you know, they're sitting around and it's focusing on Peter's song. The song was an enormous hit. It's a couple of years removed from being a People's Choice Award winner. So, of course, they're going to put it in the movie. It's still their biggest hit, is it not? Forever charted pretty high. Beth peaked at number seven. Forever peaked at number eight. And I Was Made for Loving You peaked at number 11 on the Billboard charts. So, another thing... Kiss is going to do a movie. Surely they're going to come up with new music for the movie, right? That was the plan originally, was it not? It was. They were asked to write new music for the movie, but again, because of the time crunch, they just didn't have time to write and record new stuff. So in the movie, when Abner Devereaux creates the robot Kiss to destroy Kiss, his plan is to have the robot Kiss go on stage and uh, he'll change the lyrics to their songs to incite a riot in the park, right? That's how he's going to get his revenge. So they sing a version of Hotter Than Hell called Rip and Destroy. Right. As it turns out, they get to that part of the filming and nobody rewrote the song. Paul Stanley on set came up with the alternate lyrics for the song. And it sure sounds like it too when you hear them, which is very funny. So I have to say this though. Don't give Abner Devereaux enough credit. For instance, Mm -hmm. it's the 1970s and he's years ahead in robotics, right? Let's, (laughs) Let's give him that. He's able to rewrite the lyrics to one of their songs. But in a short period of time, he sent Sam out to take pictures. And I made a notation that Sam had a pretty nifty Nikon when he was taking the pictures. <laughs> yes. So Abner Devereaux, mad genius, but still genius. What do you think this is? I've never heard of these guys. I hate them. Sam, get pictures of every angle of their face. Then, of course, you get the, the freeze frame. Right. And then it's the same angle, just zoomed yeah, yeah, in. Yeah, just zoomed in. Rewrites the lyrics to one of their songs, programs one of their songs. What can't Abner Devereaux do? I'm going to blow that theory out of the water that he's this super genius. Okay. Okay, first of all, earlier in the movie, he talks about how he created that animatronic gorilla. It took five years and thousands of dollars, blah, 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 to make that happen. Yet he builds a robot kiss in like a fucking day. You got to think economies of scale. He masters the robotics. And then he just transfers it on. Maybe he has a seamstress in the back. Maybe they're shipping out the work to be done. Who knows? I mean, clearly he's got no budget from the park, but he could recreate robots and make stuff in 1978. May or may not be true, but why, if he could put a little uh, transistor on Sam's neck and control him and also Chopper, Slime, and D, why doesn't he just like kidnap Kiss, put the thing on their neck instead of making robot versions of them? I'm sure he thought about that later on. We said earlier that there's nothing that makes sense in this movie. Nothing. And it's really silly for us to point out plot holes like that. The whole movie's one giant plot hole. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this, this is the way I looked at it. Leading you up know, to kiss, leading up to kiss, leading up to kiss, leading up to kiss, kiss. Here's kiss. There's kiss, there's kiss. Some more leading up to kiss, leading up to kiss. Kiss, there's kiss, there's kiss. Leading right. up to kiss, leading up to kiss. Movie's over. Credits roll. Thank you for shopping, Kmart. It's kind of like a porno. Nobody watches the porno for the story. It's just like, when are the people going to start having sex in this porno? And in this movie, it's similar to that in that you're watching all of the exposition in the beginning, 
us finding out about how uh, the park's siphoning off of Abner Devereaux's funds and he's all pissed off because his Freddy the Walrus got replaced by that grotesque kiss cut up and everything else. You know, nobody cares about any of that. We just want to see Kiss. So there's actually a very cool thing that happens during Rip and Destroy that I never noticed before and apparently neither did the filmmakers. If you look closely, very clearly, actually, you can see a guy giving a big middle finger to the camera in the crowd during Rip and Destroy. So for all the fans that are listening to this, that have watched this movie and love this movie and maybe have never noticed that before, there's something that you can look for next time you watch it. You know, also... And that was on NBC in 1978. And, and you think about it, what what else is a teenage boy going to do when a camera's directly on That's him, right? right. I mean, you know, At a kiss show. Here's the deal with this movie. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. It's cheesy. The Webster's definition of a guilty pleasure. Oh, without a doubt. I have to say now, every time we do a Screen Facts or I listen to an episode of yours, I want to watch the movie again. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to unwatch this one. <laughs> uh, you know, this is one of these things where- Did I, you watch this with Jonah, by the way? I did not. I have the DVD, which okay. I had gotten from you. Okay. And I want to put it on for him, possibly maybe in the car on the way to the Kiss show. Nice. I think well played, that, sir. I, I think that will be the one to do. But this is something that needs to go back into the vault and maybe five <laughs> years from now, other than showing it to my son, I love this. It's such a part of my childhood. I'm glad it exists. This was a service to Kiss fans, whether we knew it in 1978 or we're just realizing it now. It is awesome. And I take Kiss as the entire package. Everything they've done, I'm thankful for. And this movie is part of that as well. I celebrate this movie. In fact, every year around Halloween, this gets a viewing in my household. And I got news for you. I'm not the one who initiates that. The big Kiss fan? Uh Uh-uh. My wife and stepson, probably more my wife at this point. Tommy enjoys this movie, but Sue... She can't get enough of this. We have so much fun watching this movie and laughing at the dialogue. And by the way, there is a YouTube clip. Somebody took the time to isolate all of Kiss's dialogue from this movie on YouTube. Was it six minutes? Something like that. But it's great. And that's really all you need because the movie itself takes an hour and a half to watch. I mean, listen, I think that even a non-Kiss fan would probably have a good laugh watching this movie. Obviously, this podcast is for the Kiss fans. I guarantee we're either going to get a lot of listens to this from KISS fans that find out about it, or we're going to get zero. Now, and want, it's okay either way for me. And I agree with you. And I just want to add, your wife is full of surprises. <laughs> she wants to see KISS every year. Mm-hmm. It's no wonder you married the woman. She loves me, even though I'm a KISS geek. And I think that she's proud to be Mrs. KISS geek. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, what a uh, dubious honor, right? You're not kidding. So should we uh, leave it with a good shout out to your wife? Yes. And uh, patron saint of Screen Facts? I think so. Blazer, I can't thank you enough for coming in and geeking out with me. This is basically every conversation we've had for the last 20 plus years (laughs) put together in the podcast with an excuse to talk about Kiss. You and I bonded over Kiss. When we first met. Absolutely. So- this is the best time I've ever had recording a podcast with you. Thank you, as always, for inviting me here to do this oh, with you. My pleasure. It's always great having you. And thanks to you for listening. Remember that uh, if you want to get in on the conversation, give us your feedback. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash screenfacts. And also, you can tweet me at Jason Davis Voice or email us screenfacts at yahoo.com. Please rate and comment on iTunes. Help other people find the show. You can also show your support if you like what you're hearing by ordering Screen Facts merchandise at the podcast page of jasondavisvoice.com. There's also information there about all the ways you can get the podcast, including past episodes that you may have missed. Show theme music by audionautics.com. And thanks to our announcer, Kim McKay from kimsvoice.com. Screen Facts with Jason Davis is a production of Jason Davis VoiceOver. Visit jasondavisvoice.com if you need a voice for a commercial, narration, promo, internet video, e-learning or training program and more. 
Click on the podcast page to get information about where you can download and listen to past episodes. Listen again next Wednesday for a new episode of Screen Facts with Jason Davis.